0: So we saw last week the from the the study that God is personal. God is personal. To summarize that point, we, we noted that God is a living, conscious, understanding, reasoning being. He is aware of his own existence. He possesses an intellect and a will of His own, just as we would say, or I could say, I am my own self. God is His own self. That's what we mean by He is personal, or or He possesses personality. And I I ended the point last week by by saying this, that the the fact that God is personal means that you can talk to God and God is, Hears you. God receives that, and and hears what we say. And God also reveals Himself to us through His Word. He speaks to us, and we can hear Him. There there can be interaction, real, legitimate interaction between us and God. To to separate beings, and that's sort of what we're going to talk about tonight. The chapter seven is entitled God is relational. God is relational. Now back in chapter 3 you'll remember I pointed out that sometimes there are or there can be issues that come along with the language of relational in our in our modern vernacular and and sometimes that can that thinking can drift into what has been called social trinitarianism which is which is not a biblical teaching. What just to, to recap all of that, when we say that God is relational, at the very least, we're, we don't mean what we mean when we say that we relate to one another, as if, or, or as in uh, one being comes to another being and there is a, a, a passing of moments of time, there is a, a, a reception of information that we see one another, we observe one another, we... we have an interchange, I change something in you, you change something in me. For example, I say something to you, now you have heard something that prior to that you had not heard and now you have actually changed and so on and so forth. The, the idea of, of relation, the, word, the meaning of the word, carries with it that notion of interplay, of back and forth uh, alteration in one another. That's not what we mean when we say that God is relational, what we're saying is that God is a personal being with whom we can have true dealing. We, we can have a relationship with Him as a being. And the, the general drift of this chapter is really just to show that God is the initiator of that interaction that we have with Him. God is the initiator. Now, just a point out, the title of the study is Knowing the Living God. And the way that we know Him is by receiving the revelation that He gives to us of Himself. Now often when we discuss a topic like we're going to see tonight and the way that it's presented, we, we get caught up in the works or the activity of God. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. As we see the things that we're going to see, there there are moments when we... we realize and reaffirm these are things that God has done. We hear them, we want to say, yes, that is good, amen, praise the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I, as I thought through this, I wanted to put this picture before you. Let's come and sit like children in front of a, a big screen of some sort with some colorful, fast-paced, noisy Show, and just sit and, and, like a child, just stare at God. Just think about God as we walk through this and, and roll this question around in our minds as we go through this, these, these different texts. What kind of a God must this be who would do the things that we're going to see? What must He be like? See, that's, that's where we come not just to notice what He's done, but who He is. This is who He is. So then, and I'll read a little bit more from the workbook itself, and hopefully that's not uh, distracting to, if you don't have one of the books. But again, the, the title is, is God is Relational. It opens up this way. It is the testimony of Scripture that God desires a personal relationship with His creation especially with man who has been created in His image. This is one of the greatest truths of Christianity. God is not an impersonal it, incapable of entering into a relationship with others, and man is not a cosmic accident alone in the universe. God created man that man might know Him and be a recipient of His goodness. When man's relationship with God was broken through sin, God sent His own Son in order that the relationship might be restored. Those who have been reconciled with God through faith in His Son may have the greatest confidence that God seeks a personal, vital, that is life-giving, and growing relationship with them. Now I'll just point out, and we've, we've noted this before, everybody has a relationship with God. Strictly speaking, everyone has a relationship with God. It's either a good relationship or a bad relationship, but no one gets out of relating to their Creator because He's the Creator and and we are His creatures. When we say relationship in the sense that it's being used here, we're referring to a blessed, friendly, person-to-person interaction with or dealing with God, some other synonyms that, that might help us to fill out this idea of, of relationship is are words like contact or association or communication or a phrase like keeping company with one another. We can keep company with God. God keeps company with us. That's what we mean when we say God is relational or that we might have this kind of relationship with God. The first point that has to be made in considering our our dealing with god is the state in which we find ourselves in sin because the bible is clear both in the narrative of scripture and also in in clear didactic teaching the bible is clear that sin has greatly affected our relationship with god for bad that's where we find ourselves we're born where we are born into a bad relationship with god number 1 in the the workbook says, From Genesis to Revelation, the Scriptures portray God as one who desires to enter into fellowship with His creation, especially with man, in spite of his sin. In a very real sense, the Bible is a record of God seeking sinful men and working to restore His relationship with them. This truth is clearly seen even in the fall of Adam and Eve. And now we'll look at Genesis chapter 3. Verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Adam and his wife have sinned. Eve, they have sinned. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But... "...the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' And he said, "'I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, "'because I was naked, and I hid myself.'" Now the the question is, how, how did sin affect Adam's attitude toward God? Well, clearly Adam flees. Adam runs. That's the story, the narrative. Adam ran away. He hid himself. Now we could add to this the words of Christ in John 3, which sound almost like a narrative of this, or a, a, I guess we could say a doctrinal description of this. Jesus says in John 3, and this is the judgment, John 3, 19 and 20, the light has come into the world. Think of this in terms of the Genesis narrative. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness, rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's what happens. Because of our sin, we run from God. That's the picture. We run. Now then in verses 23 and 24 24 of Genesis 3, we see God's relationship to man affected by sin. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God pushes man away. Now... I think we might could, could suppose that perhaps if a way had been made, Adam would have just ran on his own. But God thrust them out of the garden. And Psalm 5.4 sounds like a description of what is happening here. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So because of sin, man flees from God and God must push sin away. There must be a separation Now the note here says, in Genesis 3, 21 to 24, we discover both the judgment and the mercy of God towards sinful man. The judgment of God is seen in that He drove Adam and Eve from the garden, which represents the separation and broken fellowship that exists between God and the sinner. The mercy of God is here revealed in two distinct ways. First, God barred Adam's way to the tree of life so that he would not eat of it and live forever in a state of sinful corruption and alienation from God. We see that in verses 22 Through 24, He bars the way. Second, God took the life of an innocent victim to provide coverings for Adam and Eve. This represents the sacrifice of an innocent party in the place of the guilty and finds its ultimate fulfillment in the sacrifice of God's only Son on Calvary for the sins of the world. Now, I would add to this, and we've pointed this out many times, I think, Because the the question is the relationship between God and man, now that sin has entered the picture. God bars the way to the tree of life. God God is the one who cuts off that that way of of achievement and self-salvation, so to speak. God blocked that off. God said, "We're, we're not doing that anymore. Life is not going to be achieved in that way anymore. Now, for those who are, uh, tend towards self-righteousness, we think, well, I, I don't like that. But, but think about the plan as it unfolds. God is, is doing this in order to establish His own way of salvation that, that leaves our works out of the picture. That's what He does. You're not going to be saved like this anymore. Adam and Eve. Nice fig leaves. Good job. Here take this. Let me make something to cover you with. God did that. That's, that's the picture that's being painted here. Turn to the next passage is Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. So no no infirmity in God. No shortcoming in God. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins... Have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem from the beginning is not our 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 problem, we're gonna use the, the the term beef, is with God, but God is not the problem in this scenario. We are. We introduce the sin. We introduce that which drives the wedge of separation. God is the one that that his arm is not short. There's nothing that He can't do. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that He he, he won't do to save. He even bars off the way of, of works salvation. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The, the point here is that sin always drives a wedge between us and God. Even Even as we come back into fellowship with God and are reconciled through Christ. If we cherish iniquity, if we hold on to unconfessed sin, we're, we're not going to be able to just carry on the interaction, the, the keep company with God as if everything is okay. The, the fact that we have been reconciled to Him sort of uh, negates that we would continue in that pathway for very long. The, the, the reconciliation we have received draws us along so that we will deal with our sin. Sin always drives a wedge between us and God. First, legally separating us from God, but even as we've been reconciled in a, in a more uh, relational type sense, the, the, the picture being between a father and their children. And the note says here, the intolerance of God towards sin is revealed. Because God is holy and righteous... Outstanding sin will always lead to separation between God and the sinner. And he, he references Habakkuk 13 Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. It's for this reason that God sent His only Son to pay our sin debt that He might have unbroken fellowship with us through faith. And that... that well, we'll keep reading. I was going to make a comment about the, the, the idea of unbroken. When we say, to cherish iniquity in my heart would drive a wedge between myself and God that would, would uh, procure His fatherly displeasure and make the relationship um, not what it ought to be, that uh, is not the same thing as a broken relationship. There, There continues for the believer... A father-child relationship—it's not broken, but it's not going to be what it could be. Just like we, with our own children, when they disobey, they don't cease to become or cease to be our children. But there is the matter has to be dealt with. So it's our sin that has separated us from God. The second point, and, and the astonishing thing about God, is that even though we are the ones to blame for sin. His essential nature and character compel Him to pursue us. Not our worthiness, not our goodness, not our uh, usefulness to Him. His character, who He is, compels Him to pursue us. And this is what we saw in Genesis 3, 8 and 9. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God comes. Yeah. He, it, I think it might be safe to say he couldn't leave the matter the way it was. He had decreed that it would not continue this way, that he, he was going to pursue. God comes after us. Now, if God's pursuit of us was not enough to reveal His true character, we even see that God's desire is that we would pursue Him. And this... Is what we saw earlier in our study. You can turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verses, well, I'll just start in verse 24 and read through 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life, or gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Not only does God pursue... God has ordered things so that we would come to Him, come after Him, pursue Him, find our way to Him. As we've seen, Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near. That's this God. He's not hiding around the corner. He's not running from us every time we get kind of close. He sneaks away somewhere else. No, He He's ordered things. He's created a world and a universe that men would look and seek and pursue Him. This is what He's done. God is not unwilling to be sought or to be found. What's the problem? Sin. We are the problem, not God. And the sad irony is that sin has so blinded us that we don't seek. Again, is that God's fault that we don't seek? No, that's our fault. That's our sin. Romans 3.11 says, No one understands. No one seeks for God. We would rather run and hide like Adam. We, we think that's a better option. We'd rather patch together our own pathetic rags to cover ourselves. Sin has so corrupted us that our very nature is averse to God. God. That's us. We are averse to him. And so, to reveal his heart towards sinners most fully, God came to men. And now we can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. I think we've got time. I'm just going to read this whole, this whole account of Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 1-10. This is Christ. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief ta- tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this story contains one of those statements by the unbelievers that it's, it's their ironic statements you know this man receives sinners the accusation here the accusation is he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner we should rejoice verse 9 salvation has come to this house the house is here the man lives here salvation comes to him Christ comes to him Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm coming to your house. I'm going to bring salvation. That's the picture. This is God incarnate. He's revealing to us God. God, in the person of His Son, has come to men. The note here, it is important to note that this statement was made during Jesus' visit to the home of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector and a notorious sinner. By His own admission, He had defrauded others in order to enrich Himself. Luke's account of this meeting between Jesus and Zacchaeus simply illustrates the truth that Jesus declared in Luke 19.10 He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for this purpose. Again, His arm is not shortened that that He cannot save. He can't be stopped in saving. He comes to save. We are the sinners. He is the Savior. Then there's... The next two passages, the first is Romans five, eight to ten. We can look at those, and, and the the topic here is is really just covering or trying to summarize what Christ has accomplished in His coming to save sinners. Romans five, eight to ten. But God shows His love for us So, so what has Christ accomplished? Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, true, true and full God, is sent. He comes to the earth to save sinners. What does He do? Well, it says here, He dies for us, takes our sin upon Him, suffers under the penalty. He dies for us. We're justified by His blood. Blood there being a, a synecdoche for that, that death. What He did achieves that which is necessary for us to be justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Sin separates. Christ reconciles. He reconciles us to God by His death, and then we're reconciled, or how much more shall we be saved uh, by His life? The the ongoing virtue of the resurrected Christ uh, working in us to... to empower us to live a life unto God. This is what Christ has done. And then the next one, the next passage is Colossians 1. Verses 19 to 22. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Notice our condition alienated, hostile in mind, that's our nature, doing evil deeds. That's where we were. Not not alienated and hostile because we've done evil deeds, but doing evil deeds because that's who we are. We are alienated. We are hostile. We run from God. That's who we are. And what happens? God reconciles us to Himself through the body of Christ by His death. This is what God has done through Christ, and then John seventeen three explains or, or elaborates upon the concept of concept of eternal life. John seventeen three, Christ praying, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent, this what we're calling relationship, uh, interaction, communion, fellowship, uh, holding company with God. When we when we are brought back into that, because God is life itself, we come to we come into possession of eternal life, which is knowing God. They are they're put together here by the Lord, and, and another passage that sort of illustrates this same thing and and brings the work of Christ specifically into the picture is 1 John 5, 20, which says, "...and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life." Knowing God, knowing Christ, eternal life. This is what Christ has done. He's given us understanding so that we might know the, the relationship constituted brings us into a, a state of life, eternal life. And the note in the, in the workbook deals with that word No, The word know means a great deal more than simply impersonal or factual knowledge. It denotes an intimate personal relationship. Eternal life is much more than a life of infinite duration. It is a superior quality of life marked by unbroken fellowship with God. This is one of God's great purposes for reconciling us to Himself through His Son. This is why we say, I say, when we come here, you you can Google facts about pretty much anybody. Learn about information about people celebrities and whatnot that doesn't mean that you know them just because you know the information as we study the, the go through this study or any type of study in, in theology uh, especially the attributes of God it is not merely knowing the facts about him that 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 means we know him we, we must enter into a communion with him receive what he has revealed and then then uh, in a sense, reciprocate the fellowship. Go back to Him and worship with Him and commune with Him through that, through uh, what Christ has done and by the, the power of the Spirit. But that's the, the point here. Is, is if, if the knowledge of God is, is equated with eternal life, then we, we have to understand that it's not just knowing information. That's not life itself. It's, it's, it's personal Communion through Christ and the salvation found in Him. Our nature is changed so that we come freely and willingly to God. We're made willing in the day of God's power. We come to Christ because we're drawn by the Father. Our nature has to be changed. Again, going back to our state in sin, because we're sinners, we don't come to God. He he has to come to us. If He doesn't first come to us, we don't come to Him. And that's what He's done. Through Christ and by the indwelling Spirit, we have a restored relationship with God. We are on good terms with God. Friendly, life-giving, blessed, person-to-person interaction and communion with God. We're on speaking terms, father and child terms with God because of what Christ has done and through faith. And then the last point that he makes is is what I'm calling the fruits of knowing God. There are several things that happen when this relationship with God is restored. Why? Because to know God is life. Well, how do you know that something is living? It's it's growing. It's advancing. There's forward movement. That's how you tell if, if if a thing is alive. So a right relationship with God produces fruit. It issues forth in certain aspects of life. And here we have three of them. Continued holiness, an ongoing pursuit of God, and a consistent witness for Christ. And on The irony here, and I guess I could say this later, but it's, it's in my mind now, the, the irony of this ongoing pursuit of God, that is a fruit of our being brought into relationship. In sin, we don't pursue. We run away. We don't, we don't go for Him. We run away from Him. He reconciles us to Him and then works in us so that we come and continue to come, keep coming, keep pursuing, keep seeking. He works that in us. It's a, it really is all of, all of God and all of grace. The first one then is continued holiness. Continued holiness is a fruit of being in relationship with God. The, the note says that this truth should not cause us to be apathetic about sin, but to separate ourselves from anything that might be an obstacle to our fellowship with God. And maybe that's the best way to word it, an obstacle to our fellowship with God. Many people might think, well, I've, I've prayed this prayer, I've done this thing, now me and God are on good terms and I can go about my business, I can go my way. That, that, that is the opposite of what happens when someone comes to know God that you've not come to know God if that's the way you think. It's the very opposite. And the, the passage that's used here is Second Corinthians chapter 6. So let's look at this one. Second Corinthians 6 verses 14 to 18. God's, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to people who have been born again, who've been reconciled to God. And he says, "...do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? These are all rhetorical questions. No relationship. They don't go together. What agreement has the temple of God with idols?" For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then a reference from Isaiah 52, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." He, he makes this note. The text is not teaching us to withdraw from all unbelievers. He's not saying cut off all contact with anybody who's not a Christian. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, quote, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral of this world or the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. We're not called to leave the world. The idea in 2 Corinthians 6 is that we are to withdraw from anything that is directly prohibited in the Scriptures or that can lead us into sin. And to go back to 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I'm I'm telling you to withdraw from people who profess the name of Christian, who call themselves a brother, but who continue in sin, because those things don't go together. So there there will be a pursuit of holiness, a, a separation of ourselves from that which is sinful. In the next text is 2 Timothy 2.19. We can turn there. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now I, I just realized I've I've quoted from the ESV and he's using the the NASB. He says the word "abstain" uh, it comes from the Greek word "aphistemi," which means to withdraw, remove, depart, or Leave, And we have the word depart. Depart from iniquity. We are to depart from, get out of the, get out of the, the presence of wickedness where He says distance ourselves from it. If we, if we have been brought into a relationship with this God, that doesn't pacify us in our sin. That doesn't comfort us to continue in sin. Just, just as, as God drove Adam and Eve out of His presence... When when we are brought into relationship with God, we we will have this tendency to drive sin away from us and ourselves from it. We don't want to be around it. Sin in the heart drives man from God. God in the heart drives man from sin. You will be growing and continuing in holiness if you've been reconciled to this God. That's the first fruit. The second one is that continued pursuit of God. There are three texts that, are, that we've seen before. We, we can look at them. The first one is from Hosea 6. Our relationship with God is founded upon the perfect work of Christ. However, this does not lead us to Apathy. A Christian doesn't say, again, not only do we, become ap- do we not become apathetic to sin, but we don't even become apathetic to our own growth toward God. We pursue. Why? Because we've been brought to life. There's activity. There's movement. Hosea 6.3, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Press on. Pursue. That happens when somebody is reconciled to God. The other two are from Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And verse 8, you have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. There will be a, a, an inner compulsion to seek the Lord when you've been reconciled to Him. That happens. It, it's not always the same sustained constant consistency. There are ups and downs. There are, there are times when we don't feel that, that, uh, that pull, that urge, like we often do at other times. And when it's not there, we recognize there's a problem. The, the Christian says, I, I don't feel that strong urge today. And that's not good. I don't like that. I don't want to be in this. I would rather feel the, the, the strongest of urges and not obtain than to wake up and feel no urge. There, there's a, a compulsion to continue in our pursuit of God. And then the third fruit is a consistent witness Christ. Number 10 says, as Christians, we not only have the responsibility to watch over our relationship with God, but we also have the responsibility to announce the gospel to others so that they too might enter into the same restored relationship with God. And the reference here is 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now this is a reference to the apostles, but in a sense applies to all Christians. The other passage, just up at verse 11, says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The idea is we know God and the knowledge of God is the greatest persuasive to true, compelling evangelism. Not just throwing the gospel, but an actual felt urgency to see men come. A loving tenderness that wants them to come. I don't want to drive you away. I want you to come. Why? Because I know the terror of the Lord. And it causes us to persuade men and to be to be faithful witnesses. A true... Somebody who has been reconciled to God wants to see others reconciled to God. This, this is not a, a prize that we grab and, and run off for ourselves and enjoy privately. So... In conclusion, what kind of a God is this? Sin separates us from God, our sin. We are the offenders, but God pursues us. He didn't leave us to die. He reveals Himself all the more. God also desires that we would seek Him. He's not hidden Himself. He's made Himself known. And then Christ came to seek The Son of God came in human flesh to remove every obstacle between us and God and to make reconciliation, to to achieve it in His own body. And then these fruits come, being reconciled to God that produces these life-giving fruits. And this is another, to me, an astonishing thought. Through our witness... Which is empowered and compelled by the fact that we know God, all this in, in God's plan and providence, this is how He has ordered it. We are we then go out to bring in more. See that? That's what God wants. God saves, reconciles men to himself, gives us his spirit, and sends us out to bring in more. He's still pursuing. He's still, he's still, the text about His arm reaching to save, it's still true. That's who He is. It's, it's not something that He's merely done, done once and finished. No, He's still seeking sinners. That's the God that we serve. And that should cause us to rejoice. Let's pray.